I was raised Catholic and there was a certain part of me that was always Catholic. Like no matter how far I was away from the Catholic church, I could go and sit in a Catholic church and pray, or I would pull out my rosary and pray. Welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. I'm Robert, and normally we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite craft beers. So why don't you pour yourself a pint and listen in for the next little while as we take the faith seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. And as always, if you want to take part in the conversation or have an idea for the Pints and Pews podcast, leave us a comment or swing by our Facebook page and drop us a message. Like I just said, and like you've heard me say episode in and episode out, normally we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite beer. And so you kind of already know the story that uh, Dennis still hasn't been able to make it out. I was talking to Dennis earlier today, however, and he is itching to get back on the podcast. So I'm sure we'll be hearing from Dennis in the next episode or two. It would be great if you still kept Dennis in your prayers as he's just getting to the end of his recuperation because I know from speaking with Dennis that everybody's prayers have been really helping him get through this health uh, issue that he's been dealing with the last couple of months. Now, before I get to introducing this month's guest or this episode's guest, I do want to give a couple of shout outs before we get started. And so my first shout out on this episode is to a good friend of mine from the the Catholic blogosphere is Joe Sales. Uh, Joe has been great in promoting the Pines and Pews podcast across social media, whether it's been on Facebook uh, or on Twitter. I would encourage you to to stop by and say thank you to Joe for helping promote the podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Joe Sales. That's J-O-E-S-A-L-E-S. And then the other shout out I want to give this evening is to you, the listeners of the Pints and Pews podcast. In the last couple of days, we broke through the 1,000 download mark of the, the Pints and Pews podcast, and we couldn't do it without you, the, the listeners that keep uh, coming back episode after episode to have a cold beverage and to listen in as we take the face seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. So shout out to all of you, and thank you for helping make the, the Pints and Pews podcast the growing success that it has been. So now I do want to introduce you to this episode's guest, Stephen R. McAvoy. Now to say that Stephen is a prolific reader and reviewer of books would be quite the understatement. He routinely reads over 100 books a year, writing a review for the vast majority of what he reads. Stephen has been reviewing books for over five years now with many more than 200 published reviews across seven different publications. Even through all of this, he has come to the conclusion that life is too short for bad books, but he also freely admits, along with Robert A. Heinlein, that one man's theology is another man's belly laugh, humbly recognizing that his taste in books might not necessarily be the same as another's. Both a craft beer aficionado and a Montreal Canadiens fan, which endears him to at least one of the Pints and Pews co-hosts, 
Stephen is a Christian who takes his faith seriously, which must come from the McAvoy clan motto of give and forgive, as well as his maternal McLennan clan motto of while I have breath, I have hope. We are blessed this evening that Stephen has taken some time away from his reading habit to join us here on the Pines and Pews podcast. So Stephen, welcome. Great to be here. Again, going through that list and also taking a look at your reading list. Uh, It's great to have you on the the show and hopefully in a little bit, we will talk a little bit about what it is to uh, intentionally read Catholic and why it's important to to read Catholic books. Uh, But how are you doing this evening before we get into all of that? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a busy week at work. I work in IT, so a couple of priority one incidents this week, but um, keeps things interesting. And whenever I see the IT guy walking down the hall at work, uh, he sees my face and he runs in the other direction because he knows I'm usually going to be grabbing in in for for one question or another. But uh, God bless you guys in IT for all that you do because you are keeping the world running these days. We're recording this on Zoom. If it wasn't for the IT and the the technology of the Zoom and things like the the GarageBand for editing the podcast, the world would come to a standstill, I think. So hopefully they treat you guys well because, you know, everyone else's livelihood is depending on the the guy from IT. Again, welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. We do talk about our pints and we do talk about about our pews. So I need to ask you, what are you drinking with us here this evening, Stephen? Tonight I'm drinking a citrus smash from Cowbell Brewery. Um, I only discovered smash beers a few months ago. Um, smash stands for single malt and single hop. So instead of a blended beer, it's a very distinct, um, very uh, unique flavor when it comes to beers. Uh, typically, I am a fan of sours or rattlers, but lately the smash have really had my heart and my taste buds. I was going to ask you, what does the smash stand for? Uh, so I, I, I just I'd never heard that terminology before. Uh, I have had that one before, and I have to say that, yeah, the smash beer, the, the sours, um, the IPAs and the rathers, for me, really are a, a summertime kind of beer. Um, I know you you only live a, a couple hours away, so you probably had the same kind of weather we had today. For me, that was not an, an IPA or a sour kind of day. D- Dennis always gets upset when I say this, but it was a dunkel kind of day. <laughs> About about five degrees Celsius. So let's say about, you know, 38, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was rainy and it was overcast. And it was a, more of a day for a, a darker beer, a, a dunkel beer. Uh, yours is from the, the Cowbell Brewery, which is in southwest Ontario, kind of along, yeah. uh, along the shores of Lake Huron in, in Blythe, a uh, small little farming community. I had learned about their beers. Uh, my mom had gone on a road trip with my son a couple summers ago, and they ended up in that part of the world. And so she had brought back the, and so we visited this great little brewery and we brought you back these beers and, and I got hooked. My favorite from them. And again, it's a summer beer is the hazy days. Yeah. IPA. I absolutely love that. What I'm drinking this evening though, uh, myself also from the cowbell brewing company, and you put me onto this, Stephen. So that's why I picked pick this one for tonight. Uh, a month or so ago on Facebook, you had posted a picture of Doc Perdue's uh, Bobcat West Coast Red Ale. And I had to run out and, and get myself a couple pints when you had done that. And uh, I fell in love. 
That's a, it's a great red ale. So why don't we open up and we'll, we'll give a pour and we'll say grace before beers so that we can, both of us a long day, both of us, it's time for the, the first discipimus. Here we go. And we'll give this a, a nice pour here. That's a, a really great amber color to the Doc Perdue's Bobcat. And just getting that nice little bit of foam at the top. Thing of beauty. So again, before we take our first sip, what we like to do here is we'll, we'll say the grace before beer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bless, O Lord, this creature beer, which thou hast deigned to produce from the fat of grain, that it may be a salutary remedy to the human race, and grant, through the invocation of thy holy name, that whoever shall drink it may gain health in body and peace in soul. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Cheers, Stephen. Cheers. Been looking forward to that all day. First sip is the best. How's your, your smash? It is fantastic. I, because I, I've had that before, but it was a little while ago. Maybe refresh my memory, just the, the taste of that and how it feels on the palate. Um, it's, it's a little tart. It's got a bit of a citrusy overtone. That's from the Citra Hops. Um, I like it in that it's, it's very refreshing, uh, very goes down easy, and it's got this nice, hazy color. And like I say, for me, that's something like a real summer kind of beer. And so the Doc Perdue's uh, Bobcat, I'm just going to take another little sip here. Yeah, it just has that, that rich, bold flavor. I'd say almost like a, a smoky caramel is what I'm, I'm tasting. I, I've said before on the podcast, you know, I'm, I'm not a craft beer snob. I enjoy my craft beers. I, I enjoy what I, I, I drink. I, and I know what I like, but I'm not one to necessarily swirl it around in the glass and stick my nose in. I just go with what I enjoy. And, Absolutely. And the, the West Coast Red Ale from, from Cowbell uh, in Blythe, which is about another, I would say it's about 150, 200 kilometers west of Toronto. Again, a, a small, small farming community out that way, but well worth the drive. Absolutely. Well worth the drive. Now, I know you don't live in Blythe. Is there in your area maybe more of a, a craft beer movement as well? Uh, there is. There's a few. Um, I mean, the most known would be Waterloo Brewery uh, with their Waterloo Dark, which is a fairly uh, widely known beer, but they do quite a few um craft brews uh, i had one this year that was a um uh, a feast of our uh, uh festival beer for Oktoberfest uh that came in a blue and white harlequin can it was um, a very nice beer um it was a uh, german style um they do a wide range of rattlers in the summer um there's also wellington brewery which is a little bit smaller a little bit further north and block three is in the region as well Okay. You know, Waterloo, I know of, and the Waterloo Dark, again, uh, a nice dunkel beer that would have gone down nice uh, to, to help warm the heart today. Mm -hmm. 
And the Wellington Brewery I've heard as of as well. The the Block Three I don't know, so I'll have to look them up and and try one of those. That's I, again another one of the beautiful things of the podcast is uh, being able to find these uh, craft beers that are are a little bit hidden. I made a road trip to Ottawa last weekend, and that was you know part of the road trip was you know how many of these craft breweries can we connect going from one one to the other. So I'm looking forward to sharing some of those as well. Uh, on the podcast in the in the near future um, something that might help with that a number of the guys on my team at work are not they're, they're a little more broad in their beer drinking than i am they use a an app called uh untapped uh which kind of gamifies beer drinking uh in that uh you can scan your beer put in the beer that you've tried and give it a rating and it will give you recommendations based on stuff that you've tried it'll give you uh streaks for days that you've tried new beers um and i had a a uh, person I was uh, acquainted with through work who had an over 700-day streak of different beers a day. It's an interesting little app that'll help you track what you like and make recommendations based on what you like. And you could, it even has a map functionality that if you're in a particular area, you can actually find where the brewery's near where I am now. I, I don't know if I need to make that into a game for myself, but <laughs> <laughs> right. But I'm definitely going to look that up. We were talking a little bit about about that before we started recording, and so you know, kind of looked that up quickly on on my phone. And yeah, I think I definitely will be downloading that. I don't know if I'd be able to beat a 750 day streak of a new beer. I don't know if I could beat a 750 day streak of of a beer a day even. That's one thing when people say, oh, you, you do a, a beer podcast, you must be drinking beer all the time. Well, no, not really. I, I do it on the show. But I find Monday to Friday, there's just isn't the time to sit down and necessarily enjoy and do the beer justice. Yeah. Right. To do the well, beer justice. This friend with the streak, he was a marathoner. So it was his post run beverage of choice, re- replenishment. So he could he he could burn the calories. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, so some of us who are a little bit more sedentary, we we don't necessarily have that that calorie burn uh, to go with it. But the, and the other part of it too, uh, for me, and we had a guest on a few episodes before, our Jared Stout, who wrote the book The Beer Option, which is a fantastic book. I don't know, and we are going to get into talking about books. I don't know if you you're aware of that one, but fantastic book that that brings together both beer culture and Catholic culture and how they're, they're intertwined. And one of the things he speaks about in the book and he spoke about on the podcast is that we need to drink beer the way God intended it to be drank. Right. So not necessarily like back in our college days where it was more about quantity than quality. Now, as I'm mellowing in my older age, it's more about quality than, than, than quantity. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a rich tradition of brewing within Catholic society. Uh, my bachelor party, um, the guys took me out to a, a, a bar in downtown Toronto um, called Smokeless Joe's. And uh, all I had all night long was different Trappist beers from all around the world. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, and it would be amazing to put those into the untapped app as well. Okay. And. Again, now that I, I'm older, more mature, that's uh, one of my dreams is to get back to Belgium and to do a, a Trappist monastery tour. Um, because again, back in the day, I was I was 21 years old. It, again, it wasn't about visiting the monasteries. It wasn't about appreciating the beer. 
we kind of reached the point in the podcast where I want to hand it over to you even a little bit more, Stephen, and you know, I'm going to ask you to share a little bit of your own faith foundation. What is your faith story? What has brought Stephen R. McAvoy to the point where he is today in his Catholic faith? Um, I was raised in a, in a mixed family. My father was Catholic, um, Irish Catholic, uh, first-generation Canadian. My mother's father was Scotch Presbyterian, and he preferred the Scotch to the Presbyterian, and she more ran along the pagan lines. Um, I went through the Catholic school system. I ultra-served until about grade seven or eight when my parents started fighting about going to church, and we kind of stopped as a family going. I left the Catholic church late in high school and again in, in my mid-20s, and um, in my early 30s, I was um, at a Presbyterian church, actually in Guelph, Ontario, and was very involved as a lay leader. I was working in, in restaurants and bars at the time, and um, they really challenged me to go back to school to study for ministry. And the pastor there believed that I had a gift and a calling for this, but he um, he thought I wouldn't necessarily be a good fit in the Presbyterian church um, or in most parishes. And um, the Presbyterian church was paying for me when I came back to school here to an Anglican college to finish my undergrad and, and go on to study, become an Anglican priest. And while studying theology, um, I became convinced of the validity and the centrality of the Catholic tradition. Uh, and I returned to the Catholic church at that point, uh, even though it meant knowing that um, I couldn't both be a priest and married uh, as I could have in the Anglican tradition. And uh, I returned to the Catholic church and I've never looked back. It's been something that has uh, continued to grow in importance to me. I was interested to hear, though, that uh, through your university days and, and through the Presbyterian Church, that you were starting to study towards becoming an Anglican priest. Yeah. And it was those studies that brought you back, actually, theologically to the Catholic Church. It was kind of like a, a John Henry Newman moment. Or yeah, um, I, I was very lucky in that. Um, when I came back to school a second time, I honestly expected to fail out and move back to Guelph, be involved as a lay leader within the church. Um, I hadn't done well academically my first time in university at Queens. I was dealing with some personal stuff and um, I have a dual form of dyslexia, which doesn't, which doesn't help. And um, I expect to come here one semester and then back in Guelph and just be a lay leader. And, and I actually did really well academically. And I, was blessed in that the University of Waterloo, the religious studies, the theology department is spread across four church colleges and main campus. So you have very devout professors of from four different denominations, and then you have some secularists who teach within the, um, the religious studies department as well. Um, my first semester here, I only I had two courses. One was actually at St. Paul's United Church College, and one was at, at St. Jerome's with um, was actually the last class that Michael Higgins taught in the classroom. He was president at the time. Um, and just his passion for uh, Catholic personalities. Uh, the course I did with him was called Faith in Modern Doubt. And we, we actually examined about 30 different personalities throughout church history. His passion for these Catholic personalities and their faith. And um, the more I studied, the more courses I took, across the different church colleges, again, the, the more I came to believe the Catholic Church is the right church. And so you mentioned the United Church College, and then I believe St. Jerome's is the Catholic College. Yeah. At, what were the other two? Renison is the Anglican College, and then Conrad Grable is the Mennonite Brethren College. 
And so you were kind of able to compare and contrast through these different Christian theologies. Yeah. As part of the undergraduate in religious studies, um, you take courses at all four colleges. Um, like you, the, like you, you, the same course that I took in, in, um, in faith and modern doubt was taught at the United Church College with a different professor and had a very different look and feel than when Michael Higgins taught that course from a predominantly Catholic perspective. So, um, but some, just some incredible professors there uh, across the church colleges. That's excellent to hear. Uh, I have some of my former students that are actually studying right now at St. Jerome's College. So hopefully they're also getting the same kind of benefit that, that you did from studying there. Take us along that journey, maybe a little bit more. How did that compare and contrast? What was your, your Newman moment or, or how did studying through those four different traditions put you on the road towards Catholicism? How come it didn't take you to the Anglican church or the United church or the, the Mennonite church? Well, uh, honestly, I think the, the transformative moment was the end of my fourth semester there. Um, there was a uh, international Thomas Merton society conference was held at St. Jerome's university. And it was the first time it had ever been held outside of the States. Um, Michael Higgins had, had brought the conference there as a student, I was asked to be a student volunteer and help with it. And I got free conference. And one of the things they did at that conference is Michael Higgins and Tom Yoder Neufeld did a presentation where they were up on stage and Tom Yoder Neufeld read from letters that his father-in-law, who was a professor at Harvard, wrote to Thomas Merton and Michael Higgins read Thomas Merton's correspondences back. And the two of them are on stage. Um, great deal of respect for each other, but playing these characters out of history and watching this interaction. And there was just something in those letters back and forth between those two men of faith. They were both passionate about their own faith, both had deep faith, but there was something in that presentation and the way that that took place at that conference, that something in me switched. I switched from being a, a former Catholic who was studying religion and looking at becoming an Anglican priest to going to confession like at that conference and returning to the Catholic church like that, that weekend. Wow. So yeah, that, that is just uh, so, so moving. It just, the way you're saying that, that it was like you were watching a conversation between these historical Catholic figures. And so no, the one, was, one was Catholic, Catholic and one was not. One was not. Okay. I wasn't quite sure. I was, Cause I, you were saying it was at St. Jerome's college. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I just I didn't pick up on that that nuance, but just that conversation between the two of them just really make the the faith come alive. And again, that's very much Newman-esque because uh, some of the readings I've done of Newman, a lot of his writings, uh, and Chesterton as well, and Balak, all in kind of in and around that time period, it was in reply to someone of you know whether it was the Anglican faith or atheistic, and they would have these dialogues, but written in the, in the journals of the time. Right. Yeah. So, so the, kind of making that come alive. And as you were saying that, and I was making a note here too, it's reminding me of uh, some of Peter Kreef's books where he imagines a conversation happening between the, these different uh, faith journeys or these different these different faith backgrounds 
And so where did you go from there? So you say you're studying to become an Anglican priest, and then you watch this conversation, and then you're in the confessional and returning to the, to the Catholic Church. So where did that road take you for the next semesters after that? Uh, well, I, I, I transferred colleges. I transferred from Renison College, where I had um, a fair bit of financial support, uh, to St. Jerome's College, where there was not as much support for me because I wasn't, I was no longer studying towards the Anglican priesthood, um, and uh, it extended out my school. But um, I was lucky in that at that time frame, St. Jerome's University College ran a series of lectures and the, the series still takes place right now. And um, it was uh, the Catholic faith in the world. And they brought in some huge names and being on campus and working on campus. And um, like uh, sister Helen Pregen came a couple of different times. And I got to meet her in person and, and be at a small dinner with her prior to her speaking. Um, there were uh, other speakers that came in that, um, just really were passionate about their faith. And one of the things I loved at St. Jerome's is most of the professors uh, in the religious studies department were people of faith. Um, and you didn't always get that at other schools. Like uh, later in life, I worked for a Navigators Campus Ministry and um, did student staff development across Canada for the campus ministry. And there are lots of universities where you can walk into a religious studies uh, department and not have a single professor that's a person of faith. And uh, which, which they, boggles the mind. How can you be teaching religious studies and not be a person of faith? When I was at Queens in the late eighties, there was a, a woman in the religious studies department uh, teaching Christianity courses who was a uh, practicing atheist. Um, I, I don't get it either. Um, so I, the, the people of faith and the nice thing about St. Jerome's university college is the classes were much smaller. Like, um, at and across the four church colleges, like I did a, a course at, at Conrad Grable College um, that I took it as a third year undergraduate course, but it was also offered as a first year MTS course. So there were six of us that were undergrads and seven grad students in the course. And the only difference was the grad students had one more essay than the undergraduates had. Um, so like, and it's a small seminar discussion level class. Um, and at St. Jerome's, I did a course with Dr. Christina Bannon. Um, and we, there were like six of us in the class. So like every other class, someone in the class taught it. So like I had to pick different people out of the textbook that were presented in the, in the church history textbook. And I had to study them, do third-party research, and then present, basically presented about six sem seminars over the semester on different people. So like the whole class was, was teaching the course. Um, you don't get that at some of the other universities. Okay. So you, you were really getting that graduate experience as an undergrad but also getting that very faith-filled and faithful uh, education like you're saying you, you just don't always get which again like i said it just boggles the mind just blows my mind how people can be teaching religious studies but not necessarily be faith-filled right let alone faithful but that's a that's a whole other podcast and a whole other discussion yeah in and of itself there's a um an essay, uh, there's a book called The Beatitudes of Truth, and there's an essay in it called Scientia Cordis. And Michael Higgins makes reference to this frequently, both when writing about Merton and, and some other stuff of his that I've read. Uh, Scientia Cordis is science of the heart. And in that essay, it talks a lot about people who will be raised in a tradition 
will go off and either study even right up to the point of converting to a different tradition and then come back to their own faith. Um, and he talks about Thomas Merton that way. And um, even Henry Noun um, had some moments like that in his history. And that's kind of how I look at my own faith journey in that I was raised Catholic and there was a certain part of me that was always Catholic. Like no matter how far I was away from the Catholic church, I could go and sit in a Catholic church and pray, or I would pull out my rosary and pray. Um, I would, I would pray to Mary when things got really bad. Um, so when I returned to the Catholic faith, it was like this renewal of these things that I already knew and an expanding and growth within them. And, and that's beautiful. It doesn't matter how deep you try to bury the seeds, the seeds are always there and they will eventually sprout and blossom. You mentioned a little bit earlier your dyslexia, yes. which I was very surprised to learn. And that was in another conversation we had months ago. How is it that someone with dyslexia is reading 100 plus books a year? Like, most recently, you were saying basically a, a book a day. I'm at a 311 books so far this year. So I'm about 10 books over a book a day at the moment. Um, I was diagnosed in grade two. I repeated grade one. I failed grade one miserably. I went from being the, um, the youngest in the class to the oldest after repeating grade one. because so I was a January birthday. I'd made it through grade one the second time in grade two, I was really struggling and I don't even know my grade two teacher's name, but I know that she fought for them to retest me and fought tooth and nail for them to retest me because they had tested me at the end of grade one and hadn't found anything. And she's like, there's something there. You have to find it, which in the early seventies is unusual. And um, it was diagnosed. I was diagnosed with a dual form of dyslexia. So I can spell words out loud, correct. And I will put them down on paper wrong. I will spell them out loud correct a second time, checking letter for letter at the paper and not register the error. So because of that, I've always struggled in English. Um, in high school, I knew that I needed an OEC English in order to go to university in Ontario. Uh, and I did general English up to grade 11. And I did grade um, 11 general English in summer school, 11 advanced or um, 12 general in summer school, 12 advanced fall term and my OEC in winter term. So I was doing the Englishes back to back to hammer them through. And I did extra credit. So when it count, my average was submitted. Um, but uh, what happened was my parents sent my brother and I uh, to a private summer school. And it was eight hours a day, all summer long, like no summer break. And they did three reading tests a day. Like you did one shortly after the morning when you got there, you got one just after lunch, one before you left each day. And you would read passages out loud and they would ask you questions afterwards. And anytime you read something wrong, if you added a word, flipped words, dropped a word, you lost five words in your word count. And any um, comprehension questions you got wrong, you lost points on your, your word count. So they would you would read for one to three minutes and they would time you and then count how many words you did. And, um, I can still picture the textbook. I can still remember a few of the stories or the basic outlines of the stories. And um, I went from reading at about a grade three level going in and I was this was going into grade eight to reading at about a university level and I went from reading about 30 words a minute to reading about 400 words a minute um over that summer wow uh, and when I learned to read it was this whole world that I never knew existed um like because I would I would rent the movies for stuff we had to do book reports on or I would talk to people in the schoolyard and and 
talk to three or four different people about the book and write my book report based on what other people said. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I, like I be, truly became addicted to reading, um, once I could, because it was this, as I said, it's this whole other world out there. And then how did that lead into now your book review habit? So you, you've developed this reading habit yeah, and you've moved into reviewing them as well. So how did that get started at such a prolific level? Well, there's two factors that led to that. One, I can honestly say I never expected to be published. Um, what, like I said, when I came back to school here, I expected to fill out because when I was at Queens, I focused mostly on arts or on uh, science courses. So I had labs instead of essays. I expected to come here and have to write essays and fill out because I was never really taught to write properly through school because when I started high school, I was told I was never going to graduate. Um, based on my academic performance. So for me, um, what led to the, the writing reviews was twofold. One, I, I've mentioned Dr. Peter Frick. Uh, he's still a mentor in my life. Um, he's at St. Paul's College. His first lecture, every course, every term, and I did eight or nine courses with him, is he does a lecture on why university? Like, why are we here? What's the purpose of university? Ty draws extensively from uh, the closing of the American mind by Alan Bloom. Um, and he talks about um, academics, the purpose of academics. But one of the things he mentioned that first course I did with him was that um, every book he reads, he wrote a one-page summary of. And that's how he cemented what he read down. Now, I was already reading a lot then, but I wasn't writing anything down. I, I'd read a book and then it'd be done. I'd read a book and it'd be done. Um, that summer, or that next term, I did uh, Eli Wazell's Night in a course. So I went and read Dawn and I read Day as well. Um, like, because I wanted the whole story, not just a piece that, they, that, that we were looking at. And um, so I was writing these already. And then later, um, when I worked for the Navigators, um, a Christian publishing company rented some office space from us here in Waterloo. There were a number of different publishing and marketing people in the office space. And the one guy had previously had my job with Navigators, and he would give me books and say, hey, read this, tell me you'd think, and I'd write a couple of paragraphs and give them to him. And I was doing this and I was a mature student at the University of Waterloo. And I thought, well, why not submit them to the university newspaper? So the first reviews I published uh, were in the spring of 2005 um, in the University of Waterloo in print, the, the uh, imprint, the university student paper. Um, from there, I wrote for a couple for the Kitchener-Waterloo Record, our local newspaper, and then uh, St. Anthony's Messenger and the National Catholic Register. Um, and my blog actually just started as an archive of stuff I was publishing in print for people that didn't have access to the print, like for friends and family that were in Kingston that couldn't get the university paper. And the university paper was online at that point in time. So the vast majority of the reviews we're doing were for Christian publications, like Christian books, Catholic books. Um, at the beginning, it was it was a mix. The stuff I was tr like really actively trying to publish was Catholic stuff, but writing for the university newspaper, I would read a lot of general fiction um, and and review it as well, um, science fiction, fantasy. Um, I I read pretty broadly, um, but it tends to go in cycles. And ten years ago, I would have read two fiction books for every Christian book I read. Uh, nowadays, it's about four or five Catholic books for every fiction book I read. Yeah. And why do you think that change has happened? Um, it started, uh, in, at, I do a top 10 list on my blog every uh, quarter and at the end of each year. The one year I got to the end of the year and I'm working my top 10 list for the end of the year, 
And I realized there wasn't a Catholic book on the list. I went back, I looked through what I read that year, and there was almost nothing Catholic. And the tagline that, that I came up with for my blog was the um, book reviews of more, the book reviews and literary musings of Stephen R. McAvoy. And I, it's a collection of fiction, children's tech uh, reviews and published articles. So the, the folk, like the first word in there was a, a collection of Catholic fiction children's book. So, and I realized I had it right. So the next, I took a look at my apps, um, I, my Kindle app, my Kobo app, my Google play app. And there's a whole bunch of Catholic books that I had bought that I wanted to read that I had gotten around to reading. So I made a list and said, okay, I'm going to try and read these books this year. And I started about 50 Catholic books in the list thinking, okay, I'll knock off a book a week on, on this list. Uh, by the end of the year, it was about 125, 130 books. I read maybe about 30 of my original 50, and then a whole bunch more got added. Um, since then, what I do is I uh, I don't start with a list, a preconceived notion of what I'm going to read, but I just record what I read. And I have a, a separate post each year. It's January 1st each year. That's my Catholic reading list. As I, as I read a book, I post list it there. As I write the review, I add the link to it. Okay. Now... Do you find your Catholic reading? I mean, I know when I do my own book lists, uh, I like to think I'm a voracious reader. And then I meet a guy like you and it's like, I got nothing on you. And by the time I, I sit down to read at night, the book ends up on my chest and I'm asleep. But I find when I'm making my reading list is I'll be reading something and they'll quote something else. I, I like that. So then I add that to the list and then I'll keep reading. Oh, I like that. I'll add that to the list. Is that what you're finding is, is happening? It's kind of almost like a, a chain reaction. Oh, absolutely. That happens to some extent. Um, a good example is a, a few years ago, I discovered um, Catholic uh, author, Alice Curtain. She's from Ireland. Uh, she wrote in the um, early in the last century, I believe her first book was published about 1919 um, and she published up to about mid fifties. Um, and she wrote, uh, a number of collections of stories of Irish saints for, for young boys, young girls, uh, collections of stories of just Irish saints. Uh, she's written both a short and a long biography of St. Bridget of Ireland. And I discovered her work and fell in love with it. And, um, I have a friend that came up with the term completionist for me in that, um, if I find an author, I really like, I try to read everything they wrote. So I'm, I'm trying to find these books by Alice Curtain, and she wrote about 20 or 30 pamphlets or booklets, um, kind of the things you'd find in the rack of the back of a church these days. I was trying to track them down, and some were from uh, the, uh, the Catholic Truth Society in London, England. So I started reading some of hers in the, from them, and since then, in the last six years, I've read about 250 of their books and booklets. Um, and like I, I find a booklet and I, I read it and then, oh, that's part of a series. Well, there's seven more in that series and track those down. I read that whole series. So like there's a, a series called Saints of the Isles, which is all uh, saints and martyrs from the time of the persecution of Catholics in, in England, Ireland and Wales. Fantastic biographies between 60 and 100 pages. Um, then uh, they've got this great saint series and they've got... Um, like just uh, there's a, a series called 20th century martyrs. Um, so all people who died for their faith, faith in the last hundred years, just some incredible books and booklets. And some of them are little booklets, like 50, 60 pages. And some of them are, um, well, my new, uh, 
divine worship daily office is from them. Uh, and it's, uh, over 2030 pages. Um, so, so they really publish the, the gamut. Yeah. They're the official publisher for the Holy See in English. So if it, um, any papal documents, so papal bulls, um, papal letters, anything that comes out from the Vatican, um, they're the, the first publisher in English. Uh, there are some reprints here in North America. Colleen Books and Media will does re, reprints of several of them um, or does their own version of them. Ignatius does some. Uh, Our Sunday Visitors does some because some of those um, any Catholic publisher can kind of pick up. But they, they do, they publish the whole gamut. Um, the only thing they don't really publish is fiction. Um, and that's more of a maybe a yet thing. You know, and, and I got to know the Catholic Truth Society through your reviews and, and through uh, what you publish and you put out there on, on social media. Now, you said you, you've put together some top 10 lists. Yep. C- kind of like David Letterman, you know, the, 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 the top 10. Yeah. You know, we'll bring David Letterman into a Catholic podcast. Uh and so I looked up because you, you had sent me the link. You have your, your top 10 Catholic books, mm-hmm. plus a few more. And I love the first two because most people don't take those as Catholic books as such. Yeah. Uh, and I won't say shy away from them, but aren't necessarily going to pick them up for their, their daily reading. And that's the Bible. Yeah. And really every person of faith needs to pick up the Bible daily i know some people that say oh start off and they're going to read it cover to cover well you you get through genesis and exodus and then it starts getting into uh, leviticus and numbers and it it just falls off the side because it becomes such a a slog through that unless you're a, a bible scholar the other one that you have on there number two and i think this is great as well is the catechism of the catholic church right and all Catholics should know what the church teaches, whether you agree with it or not. Then people find out that you're Catholic, so they're going to ask, why does the church teach X, Y, and Z? I was actually just teaching my class yesterday about the catechism. We were talking about that. And I just said, to him, yeah, if you have problems sleeping at night, this is the book for you. Because right? it's just so, so dense. But we have the copy of the UCAT yeah. and yeah, kind of the Coles Notes version but again, for those who are not, you know, canon lawyers or theological students, I think that's a great way in to yeah. discovering what the church teaches. Yeah, the, uh, it started several years ago. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, but there was a, a Catholic convert in in Windsor, Ontario, um, Owen. Um, actually, I'm blanking on his last name, but he reached out to a number of several other bloggers probably 10 years ago, maybe even more. Um, saying, I want to do a Catholic catechism blog. And there's a reading list to read the catechism in a year. And you just pick some dates and you do the readings for that day and you write a commentary on on the readings for that day. Um, And it ran for about 12 or 18 months, but it was something that started. And I would say that I've read the catechism from cover to cover seven or eight times now doing it that way, doing small sections every day and, and reading it over the period of the year. Same with the Bible. I, I read a different trend or try to read a different translation of the Bible each year, flipping through a number of different key translations. Uh, my favorite just for reading is the Jerusalem Bible. Um, 
but uh, new revised standard, um, several different translations. But you talked about youth cap, but there's a new one that just came out and it came out actually from Catholic True Society, not that I want to beat that again, but uh, it just came out this year from the um, called Sycamore, which is uh, uh, what Catholics believe. Um, and it's tied to online teaching and resources and stuff. Um, it's written by Father Stephen Wang, who's now the, um, the, the rector at the English College, College in Rome, um, but just in, incredibly done. I've, I've seen both the ebook and the physical edition. They did a, an, a phenomenal job on both. The physical book is absolutely just gorgeous, full, full color, full print pictures. Um, there is a review of it on my blog if you're looking for it. Um, but I mean, it, UCAT, um, UCAT has a separate one that's on um, Catholic social teaching. I forget the, specific name of it that, that's the the do cat so the you cat yeah. is what we believe in the do cat is what we're supposed to do yeah right. um those are fantastic books and and again maybe don't read them cover to cover your first time but little snippets every day and, and work your way through it in a year and for for me i just find there, there's so great resources again as a catholic teacher always being asked those questions and i i don't always have the answer but let's go find it out together Right? Yeah. And, and those resources. And so when we do come across those questions, instead of going to the internet and finding who knows what, we need to go to the source. And that's the, the catechism. So we've mentioned your, your blog a few times here. What is it? Where, where will people find Stephen R. McAvoy and his literary musings? Um, it's bookreviewsandmore.ca, just all spelled out. Started in 2005, as I mentioned, as an archive of published reviews elsewhere. And then what happened is I was writing a lot of reviews that I wanted to promote and, um, and encourage people to, to look at, and uh, they weren't getting pick, picked up for publication. So I just started publishing, like the first kind of six months worth on there is mostly stuff that was first, uh, it'll say at the bottom, first published, and I'll give a date of publication where it's published. And then after that, I'm like, hey, I like this book. I'm going to post this review, whether it's published elsewhere or not. And again, that's a, a great tool for those who are looking to read Catholic, because we, we really do need to read Catholic, whether it is the source, like we said, the Bible or the catechism, or a nonfiction book to help deepen our faith. And as well as the fiction, I have to to readily admit, I'm used to be a huge fiction reader, not so much anymore. Though so I, I will give a caveat, not everything I review is Catholic and not everything is for everyone. For example, I, I post, a, I do review, review a lot of Catholic young adult fiction. Um, and I, I am uh, an administrator on a, a private Facebook group for books for Catholic teens. I was asked to help administrate it a, a while ago. Um, I had a mother um, write me quite upset because she had seen that I had reviewed some Jack Reacher books and she let her 12 year old son read Jack Reacher books because, without reading the review, just based on the fact that I had reviewed that book um, and that he'd like some of the other books that I had recommended in this group. Now, I'd never recommended that book in this group. Uh, so not all of my books are Catholic books. Not all of them are going to be enjoyed by Catholics. And um, a few years ago, I actually went through and removed um, I was on retreat and I went through and removed about 50 or 60 uh, reviews of books that I could no longer, no longer wanted my name on the review. They were books that I enjoyed at the time, but not books that I would 
carte blanche recommend anymore. I completely understand that because we're all on a faith journey. We're all on a journey. And where we were five, six, 10, 15 years ago is definitely not where we are now. And sometimes we can look in the rearview mirror and say, yeah, that road was a little bumpy and maybe I would have taken another avenue if I had known, known that. And so, yeah, the caveat there, again, in knowing that, you know, it's book reviews and more. And like you say here, it's Catholic fiction, children, and tech books. So folks, read the reviews first before making that decision, whether or not it's something that you want to read. Even from conversations with friends, if they say, you know, this book or that book, look into it a little bit more before you you delve into it and you you have a, a bit of a surprise. So no, it's great for you to give that caveat on there. Again, you say we, we have the your top 10 list, which actually when I look goes up to number 11 and then you give five more, <laughs> right? So it's the top 16 list. Um, so Letterman's got nothing on you because he always stops at 10, right? Well, it comes from Matthew Kelly, actually. In several of Matthew Kelly's books, he talks about having a top 30 list. Mm-hmm. But he only ever gives out the top 10. Like you can write Dynamic Catholic and they will give you the top 10 list. But 11 through 20 changes for him. So he has this shelf that they're those books he goes to all the time. But that second block, books go in and out of that list. So when I started, yes, there were 11 originally on my list. Um, I added a few non-Catholic ones that were great. And then at the very bottom of that post, I kind of update it with a date when I add new books that I've read since this original post that would have made the list. So give us a few titles that our, our listeners can uh, scramble off to their local Catholic bookstore. And yet, please do, if there is a local Catholic bookstore in your area, support those, those local Catholic businesses uh, for that. I know it's not always possible and I can put my hand up and say I can be the worst because the little town where we are, we don't have access to that. But what are some titles that right now you think uh, Catholic ladies and gentlemen uh, could help them grow deeper in their faith and you know could maybe swing by book reviews and more.ca to read the reviews so they could get a deeper appreciation and maybe discern whether they want to read the whole book. Well, what is a book about books? Um, uh, Vicki Burbach, who works with Dan Burke um, at spiritualdirection.com, she wrote a book called How to Read Your Way to Heaven. And she has a one-year, a I believe a two-year and a five-year reading plan to kind of completely immerse yourself in Catholic thought. And it is historical fiction, contemporary, theological, like wide ranging, um, absolutely fantastic book. And it, and if you read it, you're probably like, when I read it, I had 20 books to my reading list, like to my, to my wish list instantly. Um, that, that would just get me in trouble here at home. If all of a sudden <laughs> I'm adding 20 books to my reading list. Yeah. Um, another one would be, um, uh, for those who are not familiar with, uh, Teresa Athlia Noble. Uh, she's a sister of St. Paul. Uh, there's Memento Mori, uh, prayers on the last things. She wrote Memento Mori, a Lenten devotional a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of, um, she's known as the, the nun with a skull. Uh, she has this little skull that she takes everywhere with her and she keeps it on her desk. She puts it on the table when she's eating to always think, uh, to remind herself that 
that she's going to die and to think about her death. And um, this, the prayer on last things is an absolutely fantastic prayer book and, and a lot of prayers that I don't think you would encounter many other places. Yeah. Um, and, and and just before you go to the next title, I was just going to say that that's, you know, one thing kind of our society shies away from is remembering that we're going to die. We always belabor the point that Dennis isn't back and he has been off and he, he truly has been ill. Uh, we had lined up to do a show right before he had his, his health issues. And we were going to talk about the four last things. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, saints with skulls was in our garden. I was at the garden center and this is maybe eight or nine years ago. And there were some poster uh, statues, not poster statues of St. Francis of Assisi, but there were these statues of St. Francis and there was the tree hugger St. Francis. And then there was St. Francis of Assisi with a skull. And I was like, Oh yeah. I like that one. Well, I'll bring that one. And it was to remind himself and his brothers, you know, we are going to die. Like they say, you know, live each day as if it's your last. And that isn't meaning to go necessarily rip it up and, and do all these earthly things, but live each day as if it's your last, because on your last day, that's when you're going to meet our Lord and make an accounting of your life. So those books, like the Memento Mori prayers and the Lenten reflection, amazing things. And again, so I'm adding to my list as you go. So what else have you got for me to get in trouble with? Um, Father Thomas G. Morrow, uh, I believe he's only written three or four books, but one of them is Overcoming Sinful Thoughts, and one of them is Overcoming Anger. Both of those are absolutely incredible reads. Both had massive impacts on me. Both have prayers that either he has written or he has found somewhere else that I've prayed daily since I've read those books. Um, just fantastic reads. We've, we have talked about the Catholic True Society. They're great saint series. There's like, I don't know how many books are in that series. There are over 700 biographies they've published. I don't know how many are part of the great saint series because their, their numbering system doesn't break out that the series separately. But um, like I've read books on St. Patrick of Ireland and St. Benedict and uh, Francis of Assisi and um, just phenomenal ones. Um, Edmund Campion, I would recommend kind of that series. If you're going to start anywhere with Catholic True Society, start with their, their, their saint series. Um, but I would like to also mention some contemporary Catholic fiction authors. Um, and I would love for you to do that. And again, too, I was just very quickly, if my wife ends up listening to this podcast, I know overcoming sinful thoughts and overcoming anger are going to be under the tree with my name, because those are probably two of my, my greatest uh, hurdles that I have to, to get over. And I'm happy. I was just going to ask if you could talk about contemporary Catholic fiction is the last Catholic fiction that I read was Morris West. But since then, I really don't know much yeah. about Catholic fiction. So what do you got? Well, first, I want to say that um, a lot of times when I review, a lot of the contemporary Catholic fiction I read is, is geared towards young adults, um, teen, teen or young adult audience. Not all of it, but, but a lot of it. But it's all written in such a way that like, I'm in my early 50s that I love these authors. Uh, some of these authors I have alerts set up that I get notified as soon as one of their books hit the ebook retailers. Um, but yeah, a lot of people return to the old stuff. Like I know people that like they'll read Graham Greene or they'll read uh, much to my chagrin, Andrew Greeley, or um, they'll read 
even the Alice Curtain, who I who I ran across, and all their books are early in the last century. If we want to talk about contemporary Catholic authors that are writing today, writing good fiction, fiction that that like when I write a lot of these reviews, uh, particularly when I post it on the on the Catholic Teen um, Facebook group, um, I'll say I wish I had read books like this when I was a teenager. Like I I my, I would have done things differently if I'd read this at this point in my life. So, I, I, I hear you on that. And the surprising thing is because you said you, you grew up in the Catholic school system. I grew up in the Catholic school system. I don't remember seeing anything like this at all in the libraries. Yeah. So the first one is Fiora, Fiora de Maria. Um, she's originally uh, Maltese uh, background, uh, raised in England, uh, lives in England right now. Uh, she writes some contemporary stuff, some historical fiction, her first two books are out of print, but are absolutely incredible. Um, and then she's got a series that focuses on kind of contemporary issues from Ignatius Press. And then she's also caught kind of like a, a Father Brown, um, modernized version of a Father Brown mysteries. She's writing There's three volumes in that series. Uh, she wrote one that came out just a couple months ago that is a story of a, a reporter that gets sent to interview Bela Lugosi as he's dying. And he is talking about the evil that was being unleashed and his trying to counter the evil that was unreleased through his films. Um, fiction, but fantastic book to read around Halloween. So Fiora de Maria is the first. Uh, the second is another UK author, uh, Karina Turner. Um, she has like eight or 10 different series is on the go. Um, her most known is probably the I Am Margaret series. Uh, it's set in a near future where there's a, um, a year, the, the world is basically broken into four or five different geographical regions. Um, she lives in the Euro block. Um, and if you're not used to society, you're literally recycled. So she fails her grading at the end of grade school and goes to a facility where they're basically going to fatten her up and keep her healthy until her parts can be harvested. So, yeah, very much um, a 1984 or Brave New World uh, yeah. or The Giver. That, that's all coming to mind as, as you're saying that. And yeah. I think you've got three more names on there. Yeah. If you could just kind of quickly go through. Yeah. Uh, A.K. Fraley, more for adults, less for, for young adults, though her, her fiction is definitely for, could be good for young adults and teens. Uh, Teresa Linden uh, and Karina Fabian. And Karina Fabian kind of writes across the board. Uh, the most recent book I read by her uh, was about um, zombies in San Francisco and about a Catholic zombie hunter. Um so uh, she writes a, a series. It's a parody of Star Trek called Space Trapes Hold My Beer. Uh, there's a few volumes in that series. Uh, but she's also written some uh, about a, a series about rescue nuns. So uh, sisters in space that perform space rescues. So no, very, very cool. And again, like you say, if those titles have been around when we were growing up, definitely would have taken a few different decisions uh, along the way and, and some better turns i'm going to put you on the spot right now okay and you better get this answer right but very recently what is the absolutely best book that you have read and like i said you better get this right and hopefully you know where this is going you want me to uh, i know what you're looking for uh i thoroughly enjoyed your book your your book was a really good read 
It will probably make a top 10 of the quarter. It's not likely to make my top 10 of the year. I'll be honest. Oh, now my heart is absolutely broken. No, um, just the fact that you took the time to to read and review. I am e- eternally grateful for that. And uh, I still have to share that out on social media. I try not to bombard people too much with, with things. So uh, kind of as, as I go through, but in the next few days, I, I do want to get that out. Uh, and, and I thank you for taking the time to review Five Smooth Stones you know, facing the Goliath of our, our fears, which is coming out in the next week or two uh, with Justin Press out of Ottawa. Uh, another hidden gem of a publishing company that that's out there, uh, a small Canadian Catholic publishing company. And one of their biggest authors is actually Michael O'Brien, who has a new book coming out of, of essays with them uh, as well, uh, along with my own. And then there was a, another book as well, which it escapes me uh, at the moment. Thank you. We had to get that plug in here on uh, on the podcast. That's the first time I've announced it on the podcast as well. So, well, uh, I want to plug one more if you'll let me. Oh yeah, go right ahead. I did talk about Karina Turner. Um, her one of her other series is kind of like a cross between Jurassic Park and Lost World. So it's set in a future where scientists did like. The, the beginning of every book starts with just because a scientist can do something doesn't mean they should do something. And dinosaurs roam the entire world and humans lived in electrified cities, cities with electrified fences. Farmers lived in farms that have different, like smaller electric fences. And there's people that lived unsparked hunters. So when you're outside a fence traveling between city or city, you're unsparked. Um, in that series, she wrote one for my son when he was in the hospital last year called Liam and the Hunters of Hab V. Um, habitat vehicle uh, that set before any of the other stories in that. And we meet a hermit in that story who's called St. Desmond the Hermit uh, in all of the other books. So I would give up just a plug to that Unsparked series. It's fantastic. Uh, my son and I have read it about three times now. I read it to him and he, he actually just finished last week rereading the entire series to me. So oh, that, that is cool. Yeah. So the Unsparked series and that was from Karina Turner, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, the, so uh, especially for the those younger people, those younger Catholics, um, you know, younger teenagers, uh, really do take the time to go by book reviews and more.ca to read some of Stephen's reviews because there's only so many more shopping days left until we celebrate the great feast of the Nativity of our Lord and give the the gift of, of books this year. And that would be absolutely wonderful. I've been told, Stephen, that the glass I have at the podcast is an hourglass because it takes roughly an hour uh, for, for that to go down. The Doc Purdue's Bobcat West Coast Red Ale from Cowbell Brewing Company. Absolutely splendid. Again, I, I thank you for the book review, but I thank you for putting me onto this craft beer. It is absolutely phenomenal. So if you're able to get uh, your hands on some of that, I would strongly suggest it. How's your smash? My smash is just about gone um, as well. It It's fantastic. And my mug is a, um, a ceramic mug. It sort of looks like something you'd see at the Prancing Pony, but instead of being wood, it's ceramic. Uh, my wife picked it up for me specifically for beers recently as a as a gift. And it's, um, it's a very nice ceramic beer stein. And, you know, as much as it's about the beer, what it comes in as well really enhances the flavor. So that's uh, always nice. And then too, just to have that 
that link to your wife as you're you're sitting back in it and enjoying that beer. Uh, the pints, the pints have been wonderful, Stephen. The conversation has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for taking the time to stop by this evening. Maybe we'll have to get you uh, back in next year, close to the beginning of Advent, to go over your your top 100 books of the year uh, for next year as well to to help people with their their shopping endeavors. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have a pint with a friend. Conversation is is a pleasure. Talking about our Catholic faith is fantastic. Now, just before we wrap up here uh, this evening, I do want to ask one quick favor of our listeners, and that's if you could take a quick moment and a couple of clicks to follow the Pints and Pews podcast on your favorite platform and give us a review while you're at it. Stop by, like us on Facebook, and drop us a line. Let us know what you would like to hear on the Pints and Pews podcast. God willing, we'll be able to chat again soon, and God willing, Dennis will be back with us. Until then, I ask our listeners to remember the wise words of a great Catholic author, G.K. Chesterton. In Catholicism, the pint, the pipe, and the cross can all fit together. God bless. God bless.